Well, today we're going to return to our study of what we've now named the not-so-minor prophets. So if your Bible says minor prophets, go in there and adjust that. If you've been studying them at home, and many of you have, you know that the minor prophets aren't an easy read. And there are two reasons for that. First of all, they use a lot of symbolic language because symbols are timeless. But secondly, I'm sure you've noticed the prophets just switch topics without any warning. One minute they're talking about forecast of judgment, the next predictions of the future, the next invitations to repentance, and the next assurance of restoration. Now in that regard, the prophet we're going to look at today, Nahum, is easier to follow than most of his fellow prophets. Because while we know virtually nothing about him, and I'm sure he's fine with that, his prophecy is neatly organized around three themes. The certainty of judgment on the ancient city of Nineveh, the circumstances surrounding that judgment, and the evil in that culture that incited God's judgment. All that said, I would still suggest that when you study and read the minor prophets at home, use a contemporary translation rather than the King James Version. Now, I know Paul carried the King James Version. (laughs) Hopefully you know that's not true. (laughs) But the difficult symbolism of the prophets in a form of English that is markedly different (laughs) from what we use today, is a, that's a tough task. So I would encourage, read them in a contemporary translation. With that, I want to set the stage for today's consideration. I want to defend God's often assaulted reputation. And I want to encourage a generation of intimidated followers of Jesus. And to do that, I want to read some of the opening lines of Nahum's prophecy found in the first chapter. He said, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. The Lord is good. Today I want to talk about the topic good and angry because God is both. Would you join your hearts with me in prayer? Father, increasingly we see your followers intimidated in this increasingly secular and hostile culture. And we daily hear your good name dragged through the mud. All kinds of false allegations hurled in your direction. The ancient prophet Nahum recorded things that will help us to resist both of those trends. And today, as we unpack his message, I pray that your spirit would enable me to teach it faithfully and then enable us to apply it diligently. And as always, we pray these things for the sake of your reputation and for the sake of a broken culture that needs Jesus' followers to be strong in faith. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And as we study God's Word together today, may the Lord be with you. I'm sure you've noticed that lots of people have lots of problems with God as He presents Himself 
in Scripture and high on the list of frequently heard complaints against God are two things that Nahum spoke of repeatedly, God's anger or wrath and God's judgment. And Nahum saw no contradiction between those two things. He saw no contradiction between God's judgment and God's goodness. He opened his writing by speaking repeatedly of God's jealousy, God's wrath, God's anger, God's punishment, and God's vengeance. And then, just a few verses later, he declared, God is good. And he did that with no sense of contradiction. And that's where a lot of people would part company with Nahum. Many who have been raised on a diet of moral relativism who can't comprehend absolute truth, people who've been raised on a diet of faux tolerance, shifting values, inadequate concepts of love, pseudo-compassion, and human arrogance, would consider goodness incompatible with judgment. And they find the idea of God's judgment offensive, and to their line of thinking, that alone disqualifies Nahum's declarations. Now, to better understand why the prophet saw God's goodness and God's judgment as essentially one and the same, we're going to consider his sobering account of what was going to happen to an ancient city. Like all of the prophets before him and after him, Nahum made it clear that God is sovereign over the affairs of nations and human history. Contrary to appearances, humanity is not in control. God is still very much in control, even when it appears otherwise. Now, the citizens of the ancient city of Nineveh would have scoffed at that statement because Nineveh, when Nahum spoke about them, was the world's greatest city. It was made up of four cities in one, much like New York City is made up of its five boroughs. And its area was the same as that of modern London. It was surrounded by 100-foot-high walls. And the walls were so wide that they could accommodate three chariots side by side. Inside those massive walls, hundreds and hundreds of acres had been set aside for agriculture and the raising of livestock. A large river ran from outside the city into and through the city. So Nineveh appeared to be immune to a siege because if surrounded by enemies, they still had drinking water, they still grew their crops, they still raised their livestock. And oh, by the way, they were the top military in their world. Now, if you've been with us through this series, you'll remember that many years earlier, another prophet by the name of Jonah spoke to the people of Nineveh, and in response, they repented of their unrelenting aggression and their unspeakable cruelties. You'll remember I said they were ISIS on steroids. Nothing was unacceptable to them. They delighted in finding new ways to torture and persecute people. But they repented. 
And because they did, they avoided God's judgment. And as a city, they learned God is good. And they subsequently enjoyed over a century of God's blessing and prosperity and peace. But then they did something they should have never done. They repented of their repentance. They changed their mind about following after God. They returned to their old ways, and they became worse than ever before, and for good reason. It's one thing to sin in ignorance of grace because you don't know any better, but it's another to reject grace after you've witnessed it at work. To choose unbelief after you have seen God at work in your life or in your culture requires a hardness of heart, a deliberate, informed refusal. It's sinning with knowledge. And sinning with knowledge always produces more dire consequences than sinning in ignorance. It hardens the heart, and it leaves you inevitably, predictably worse than you were before. And that's what happened to Nineveh. Now, Nahum said, God is slow to anger. I'm glad he is. (laughs) But he won't leave the guilty unpunished. And at the time Nahum said that, the city of Nineveh had been disobeying God for decades without any apparent consequences. Everything seemed to be working just fine. And that created in them a false sense of security. They failed to recognize that God's patience is an expression of his compassion, not his permission. And he will never exercise his compassion at the expense of his holiness and his judgment because they go hand in hand. Nineveh was going to learn that God's goodness forgives sin in response to repentance, but that same goodness judges sin in the face of rebellion. Why? Because a good God can't allow the damage and the suffering that sin inevitably produces to go on unchallenged indefinitely. And that's why at a time when everything seemed to be working in Nineveh and when they appeared to be invincible, Nahum stepped up and said, they're soon going to be destroyed. And the way his prophecy before the fact perfectly aligned with what happened subsequently affirms once again the inspiration of the prophets and of the word of God. Nahum was not some bogus televangelist spinning off prophecies of his own making to rob widows' houses. He was a true spokesman for God. So here's what he prophesied. He said of the city, the gates of the rivers will be opened and the palace will be dissolved. The gates of the rivers will be opened and the palace dissolved. And the people in Nineveh just said, what's he been smoking? (laughs) It didn't make any sense. But not many years later, all the nations that the people of Nineveh had conquered joined together in an alliance to destroy Nineveh. But when they come up against those massive walls, they couldn't penetrate them. 
So a stalemate ensued. They camped outside the walls, but inside the walls, people of Nineveh were raising their crops, raising their cattle, plenty of drinking water, biggest military in the world, and they felt safe and invulnerable. And then the prophecy began to unfold. Nature intervened. And Nineveh hadn't counted on that. We know from history, it's all documented, that incredibly unusual rainfall hit that area. It sort of felt like that this spring here, didn't it? <laughs> and after day after day after day of incredibly unusually heavy rain, those two rivers outside the walls overflowed their banks. And the river that flowed under the walls providing drinking water to the city grew so massive that it literally one day just washed out a whole massive area of those 100-foot walls with the force of nature. And immediately after the wall was washed away, all the invading armies rushed through the gap. They killed most of the inhabitants. They destroyed everything in sight. They burned the palace to the ground. And by the second century, you could stand on the site where Nineveh had once existed. And unless you dug underground, you would never know anything had ever existed there. A city the size of modern London disappeared from the pages of history and disappeared to human view. And the city that learned God is good learned that the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Nahum, like his fellow prophets, made it clear that humanity is on trial before a good and holy God. But our contemporary Western culture has essentially taken that truth and stood it on its head. We now speak and act as if God is on trial before us, before humanity. Rather than being concerned that we're violating God's laws, many openly accuse God of violating their laws, their notions of decency and tolerance and compassion and justice. And sadly, some intimidated believers are following that lead. Because some of Jesus' followers are embarrassed by a God who appears to be horribly out of touch with our modern Western values. And there are teachers arising who are suggesting that the church has had it all wrong. In fact, they go so far as to suggest that God needs to be rescued from the clutches of Scripture. That the very book intended to reveal God can and often, gets, often does get in the way of our knowing God and understanding God. So to discover God, they suggest, we need to put the book aside and some of these notions that are written in the book, and we need to just intuit God for ourselves. Never mind that the heart is deceitful. We need to listen to our own hearts. We need to listen to our own thoughts. We need to listen to one another. We need to listen for God in religions that deny who Christ is. But God's heart is best known by believing Scripture, not rejecting it. 
Remember, Jesus said to the unbelieving, search the scriptures in them, you'll find eternal life. And that was before the New Testament was even written. I'm going to go with Jesus. Those who disrespect Scripture insult the Spirit of God because all Scripture was breathed by the Holy Spirit. When you say Scripture doesn't portray God accurately, you're calling the Holy Spirit a liar. God takes that very seriously. Rather than being biblically informed and spirit-led, they're culturally intimidated, culturally seduced, and spiritually compromised. They fit the description, in the last days men and women will not endure sound teaching, but will seek out for themselves teachers who tickle their ears, telling them exactly what they want to hear rather than the truth that God has revealed. It's all setting the stage for the final great deception. Those who advocate this line of thinking, their God isn't the good God of Nahum. Their God is a constantly evolving God, a God who takes his cues from an insane culture with an inflated opinion of itself despite having virtually nothing to recommend it. Their God exists nowhere outside of their imaginations, and their God looks like them, and that makes him impotent and irrelevant. And those who follow that path forget it isn't God who has been tried and found wanting. It's humanity. God does not need to be rescued from Scripture. Humanity needs to be rescued from the sin that he talks about in Scripture and needs to be rescued by the God who reveals himself in Scripture. Our God does not evolve. The Bible says there's no shadow of turning with him. You don't tinker with perfection. God doesn't need counseling. God doesn't need to read the latest bestseller from the New York Times bestseller list. God doesn't need to attend any seminars to get his act together. Those who suggest that the God of the Old Testament is not the God of the New Testament indicate they don't know the Old Testament, they don't know the New Testament, and they certainly don't know God. Because, again, Jesus referred to that Old Testament as the Scriptures that will give you eternal life. See, God didn't discover grace somewhere between the minor prophets, between Malachi and Matthew. During that period, he didn't go to a seminar and come to the realization, oh, I've been rather narrow and hard. I I need to lighten up a little bit. The truth is, God is not one bit more compassionate today than he was in Nahum's day. And he is not one bit less uncompromising towards sin than he was in Nahum's day. There is no shadow of turning with him. The Old Testament is chock full of examples of grace. And in the New Testament, Jesus said more about hell than any other person who is recorded in Scripture. God's grace and God's judgment, God's goodness and God's judgment don't need to be reconciled because you don't need to reconcile friends. God has always been uncompromising towards sin, but compassionate towards those who repent of sin. 
See, one of the reasons we struggle to accept God being angry is because we equate God's anger with our anger. But newsflash, we are not God, and God is not us. Our anger is usually rooted in one of two things, pride or fear. And it's all about getting even and protecting ourselves. God's anger is not rooted in pride or fear. It's rooted in his love. And it's not about protecting himself. It's about protecting us and protecting his creation. When we're angry, we try to get even. In God's anger, he tries to set the world even. He tries to put things in the right place. And for those who suggest the idea of God judging demeans us, let me suggest that God's anger towards the things that dehumanize us is a reminder that beings created in his image have significance. If God didn't judge our conduct, he would be saying our conduct doesn't matter. And if your conduct doesn't matter, your life doesn't matter, and you don't matter. You're just dust in the wind with no significance whatsoever. Now, the same world that can't tolerate the idea of a holy God judging has no difficulty judging for themselves. They have no difficulty expressing anger and taking action against the things that they feel destroy society. They have no problem establishing their own definitions of what is just and what is unjust. They have no problem calling for anger in the face of what they judge as unjust. They have no reticence about calling people to take action against what they define as unjust. They have no difficulty encouraging people to take action through social media, public demonstrations, boycotts, advocacy, political pressure, and even violence. And those efforts are termed heroic, courageous, necessary, right, and proof that you care. And they're applauded as evidence of compassion. So, the very same behavior that makes a good God repulsive when carried out by fallen humanity makes fallen humanity admirable and noble. In the words of the prophet, what a crock. <laughs> when a holy God defines and acts, ugh, but when unholy humanity defines and acts, aren't we noble? You see, the issue isn't the defining of evil or the punishing of guilt. The issue is who's defining and who's punishing, God or us. Nahum made it clear that God is always good. And because of that, when necessary, he punishes guilt. God's anger and punishment don't contradict his goodness. They complement it. What did God command of his people? He said, as my followers, be angry yet without sin. Now, if God calls us to do that, don't you think God can pull that off? Don't you think God follows the same standard? 
And I would remind you it was the good anger of God that produced the cross. At the cross, you see God's judgment and God's love as one. What his perfect justice required, his sacrificial love paid. God didn't sacrifice one aspect of his being for the other. He expressed both on the cross. See, when you and I go to films, we like films that end with evil being found out and appropriately punished. We all do. Nobody likes a film where somebody gets away with it in the end. We want resolution. All of the, the recent uh, superhero films, all, all the same basic storyline. Seemingly invincible evil, but in the end, the Justice League prevails. <laughs> That's what we want. Why? That is a faint echo of the image of God in our hearts. It's a reminder of who created us and why. But I would remind you what is faint in us is strong in God. Interestingly enough, the prophet Nahum's name means comfort. Guy named Comfort tells the city of Nineveh they're going to be destroyed. But that wasn't bad humor because his prophecy was meant to bring comfort to those who receive it. Nahum reminds us evil will not prevail. God may be waiting that final judgment because of his love and his incredible patience. He is slow to anger. And if you came into his kingdom in the last year, you should be glad he is slow <laughs> to anger. But he won't leave the guilty unpunished. And that's why the New Testament ends in what really is just a, a remake, if you will, of the book of Nahum. Because the final book of the Bible, if you've read it, tells us that one day the arrogance of humanity will achieve its ultimate expression in essentially outlawing faith in Christ and setting up a one-world kingdom under the leadership of a charismatic figure who will be known as the Antichrist, the bogus Christ, the substitute Christ. I believe with all my heart we're in the early stages of that. Because to do that, people have to be so fearful that they will surrender their national autonomy in the favor of somebody who can promise peace and stability. Uh, the symbolic number of that ruler is 666. Why? Because six is the number of man in Scripture. It was on the sixth day that man was created. And 666 symbolically denotes the ultimate expression of man's arrogance and rebellion. We don't need God at all. We have found our gifted leader. But if you've read the book, you'll know when they're saying peace, 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 destruction is going to come. Jesus is going to visibly return. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. Let me suggest, if you don't keep that in mind, you're probably not ordering your priorities correctly. Christians should not live as if this mess is got to go on forever. 
we should be preparing for the day when Christ returns. And when you read the description of that day, it talks about the souls of those who have been martyred for the faith, waiting under what is described as the altar in heaven, crying out, how long, God? How long? How long? Those men who were made to kneel on the seashore just a year ago to have their throats cut by ISIS. Their souls in heaven are saying, how long, God? How long? We know you're good. We know you're patient, but how long? How long? How long? How long? And it won't be forever because God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Why should that be comforting? Because if God didn't punish guilt, the world would have no hope. If God didn't make it clear that humanity's rebellion is on a timetable and it will not continue indefinitely, how would we ever have any hope of a better world? If God is not going to judge, we are in a hot mess and there is no period at the end of the sentence. It's just got to keep on and on and on and on and on. All the addiction, all the child abuse, all the injustice, all the violence, all the corruption, all the materialism, all the hatred, all the division, all the wars, all the ethnic cleansings. It's all got to just keep going and going and going and going and going and going and going. Boy, that's hopeful. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. I think one day this nation will be much like ancient Nineveh feeling all that and a bag of chips and confident nobody can touch us because we do have the most powerful military in the world. But while we kick God to the curb in his love, he patiently waits. But the day will come when God's going to say, no more, no more. Don't be embarrassed by that. Don't be embarrassed by God. I want to assure you something. Once Jesus returns, if it becomes clear you're one of his, you won't be embarrassed by that association. Don't be embarrassed by it now. The world doesn't understand that God is both good and he judges, and that he judges because he is good. But we ought to understand it. And we ought to be willing to share it with people. Because there's something else they inherently know. They know they're broken. They may bluster and deny it, but they know they're broken. And only a message that tells them of a God who can fix their brokenness will be worth preaching, living for, proclaiming, and dying for. We always close these series by talking about the intersection of faith and culture. When you stand at that intersection, the culture says, if there is a God, he looks like us and he approves what we approve. Jesus says, oh, there is a God and he looks like me. And he is uncompromising towards sin, but he is compassionate towards those who repent. Let's pray together. If you have never called upon the Lord to save you from your sin, and we've all sinned, and God has spoken to your heart today through this message, 
You just, in the quietness of your heart, ask him to forgive you and change your heart and save you, and he'll do that. It's that simple because the cross is where God did all the heavy lifting. Lord, I want to pray that as your people, we will not take our cues from an insane culture, and we will not compromise the truth, but we will stand for it unashamedly, knowing that it is mankind's only hope. Lord, we're thankful you're good. But we're thankful that in your goodness, you also get angry and judge. And we're thankful that one day, little boys and girls won't be abused anymore. People won't be gunned down because of their pigmentation. People won't hate one another because of any number of ridiculous things. We'll study war no more. Thievery, corruption, greed, arrogance, addiction, it'll all be gone. Because you're not only good, but you get good and angry, and you don't leave the guilty go unpunished. Help us to get on the right side of that and rejoice in it, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. By the way, I know that message is countercultural, but whoever said the church was called to be cultural?